Good morning, everyone. Hello, good morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. What a lovely group. Hello. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Margaret LeMay, and I'm the Associate Director for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. Thank you so much for joining us this morning at our 11th hour lecture series. What lovely weather and what lovely friends. Iowa Summer Writing Festival friends, I hope you enjoyed a restful evening. And other friends who are not taking an Iowa Summer Writing Festival class, I hope you too enjoyed a restful evening. Welcome to our first 11th hour lecture of the week. Juliet Patterson is here to help us hone and detail our power of re reflection. That's not the one in the mirror, but the tool in writing. Juliet was recently named a finalist for the 2017 Audre Lorde Award in Poetry, and her memoir in progress was a finalist for a 2017 Loft McKnight Award. She is author of two chapbooks and two full-length collections. Please help me welcome her for what I think will be an engaging, fascinating, and perhaps transformative discussion. Thank you, Juliet. Good morning. Can you hear me? Um, so I do want to emphasize discussion. This actually is more of a discussion than a lecture. That's just what I tend to prefer. And just to give you a little background to the genesis to the conversation, and also highlight um, um, the lecture tomorrow uh, by Hope Edelman. It's just sort of a happy accident that we're maybe talking about similar things, but I have a hunch <laughs> that my talk may be sort of laying the foundation, sort of the basic 101 of reflection, and that Hope will probably take you um, further down the road with more me uh, mechanics and sort of uh, methods of uh, action. Hope is, of course, a very accomplished memoirist. Um, I have just finished my first memoir. And I'm a poet, primarily. Um, this isn't true for every writer, but to move from one genre to another was extraordinarily difficult for me. Uh, that's primarily because I'm a lyric poet. I tend to not um, have narrative thread in my work. And I definitely do not write about myself very often, at least not in an opaque or overt way. Um, so to, to move from that to a memoir was um, extraordinarily challenged and humbling. And I'll confess that I used to have a, a little bit of a snobbery when it came to memoir. And I'm now pretty much convinced it's the most difficult um, thing to do in writing. Um, so we're going to start out with an exercise. Uh, what I'd like you to do is close your eyes for a minute and think of a potent memory from your life. So something that's very visceral and easy to remember. And once you've got that, open your eyes. And then for five minutes, I'd like you to write this memory. But I'd like you to start with someone talking. So a bit of speech, someone talking, either you or someone else. And be mindful that you don't want to get into a, a long section of dialogue here. So don't let that person talk for very long. Uh, back up if you can, away from the scene. Describe what you see once the speech has been uttered. OK? Here we go. Five minutes. OK. Would anyone like to sort of basically describe their experience while reflecting? What was easy about it, and then maybe what was difficult? Someone that was, came natural to? Could you describe what that was like? Well, your prompt of why it was defining made it very clear. So without that, it might. 
Okay. How about a, I feel like Phil Donahue. Yes. How about some difficulties? No difficulties. Oh, my, my talk is going to bomb now if there's no difficulties. Here's some difficulties. <laughs> a wee little microphone. Um, it's a combination of I was one of the people it came easily to, but what was difficult is because it came so easily and I was in the moment, I didn't want to go there emotionally. And I could, but it was unpleasant. So there's that. Great. So again, you should come tomorrow and hear Hope talk about some strategies to deal with the actual mechanics of reflection. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the reflective part became, came so easily. Um, well, <laughs> uh, so. Again, the genesis of the talk is in my own experience. Um, sorry, I'm just fumbling around here. Can you hear me? In my own experience, this was the most challenging part of the memoir. And, and I see it when I work with students who work in personal essay or memoir, that this is the hardest thing to do, is to actually come back on the page and think out loud about yourself in a way. Um, but before I get ahead of myself, let's just think about the definition of the word reflection. And just beg, I beg your indulgence, I'm a poet, and so I like to think about words very deeply. So the, here's, here's the etymology of the word. <clears throat> it means, uh, in references to surfaces, throwing back light or heat, literally a bending back, a bending back. And I sort of love that as an image and a metaphor for how we have to think about ourselves um, returning to the past. So it isn't just looking, it's actually physically bending back. Let's think about a yoga pose like the bridge or some other move where we really have to put our body in the position, not just our minds, right? Um, there are other definitions of the word reflection too. In physics, reflection is the phenomena of energy that's returned upon a surface, right? It's the actual literal bouncing of light and once our experience of real life encounters a different medium, our memories, for instance, or the writing process itself, which you just did, that real life experience is changed. And that, I believe, is really the genesis of Hope's talk. She's probably going to go into that in a lot more detail than I am. I'm here just trying to lay the framework for possibilities in reflection. Okay? So when we talk about um, memoir, Philip Lope talks about the idea of the double perspective. Uh, the trick, really, to writing memoir is that you have to allow the reader to par uh, participate in the experience as it was lived. So that's sort of the storytelling, the confusions, the misapprehensions, uh, but while also conveying the sophisticated wisdom of one's current self. So this second perspective, the double perspective, is the author's retrospective employment of a more mature intelligence to interpret the past. And this is where the really hard work comes. Um, so memoir does two things, right? It tells a story, 
and it tries to make sense of the past. And here, storytelling is that showing part of the equation, right? It's that those tools that we're familiar, if we're prose writers at least, um, with using dialogue, character, description, and you create scenes. But reflection, on the other hand, is when you try to make sense of all this. And it's largely unique to memoir. Um, it requires ruminating on the page, thinking out loud, sifting through your thoughts, and again, bending back. Now, to use myself as an example, the funny thing is <coughs> I had a really hard time creating uh, a story. I don't know how to tell a story. I don't come from a family of storytellers. That's why I'm a poet. My poems don't tell stories. I'm not interested in stories as a writer. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Um, did I know how to make a scene? Not really. Uh, in poetry, we call a scene an image or a metaphor. You could have an extended metaphor. You can have a pile of images, which is a crew to a scene. Um, and again, this is just me as a, a, a writer. It's, it's not everyone. Um, so oddly, the storytelling part was equally as difficult as the reflection. Um, it would appear, and someone asked me this yesterday, well, don't poets reflect? And I had to really think about that. Um, I do think that this kind of work is easier if by nature you are a reflective or contemplative person. And some of that's just your personality, right? You, can't, you can move that along only so far. Uh, I would describe myself as one of those people. But again, <laughs> that sort of bald-faced confession, the bald-faced declaration or narrative is um, really, really frightening to me, and I would prefer to lay out in a metaphor rather than say something that's based in reality, right? Um, so here I want to sort of just remind us that the trick of nonfiction, personal essay and memoir, is to balance these two things, and you can't do it all at once, usually, right? So when you're drafting something, you should go with what is natural to you. And you may find that you actually are more reflective naturally in getting your story down. You may find that you're more scene-driven naturally in getting your story done. You may find that you're just getting the bare-bone skeleton of the facts. You're just telling all the chronology, right? And don't worry about how that's going to look later. Get your story out. Then you'll come back to it and figure out the nuances of what is missing. So two stories, that of the actual experience, the surface subject, the facts, the sequence of the remembered events, which, by the way, does not always make a great memoir. <laughs> what makes a great memoir is the internal struggle. It's the reflective part. It's the narrator, the speaker, giving us a lens into this whole experience and why it matters. The inner narrative. So now we're going to think about reflection, not being as reflection, but as an inner narrative. So in the early drafts of my memoir, um, <laughs> I wrote about 100 pages, uh, but there were about 10 of those pages where I used the personal pronoun I. That's no exaggeration. I was thrusting myself on other people, projecting like crazy, 
I couldn't bear to come on stage and say anything from an I perspective that was from my real life. And of course, everyone who read it at that stage said, you need more reflection. <laughs> you need to tell us what you're thinking. Can you tell us more? How were you feeling? What did you do? What did that feel like? It drove me crazy. But no one could really tell me what reflection was. Until finally, I came upon a mentor who said, no, no, no. You're talking about the inner narrative. You're talking about the inner narrative of the speaker. The storytelling is you as a narrator. The inner narrative is really you as a character in many ways. And that's very broad, and hopefully, again, hope will tease out the nuances of that. Here's another way to think about it. This is from Judith Kitchen. The process of building thought, the inner narrative, that's really what grips your reader. Of course, good scene will grip your reader too, but your good reader is not going to last 200 pages with you if you don't give them something to follow. So we look for as much as how an author approaches a subject as the subject itself. This was so relieving when I came upon this list by Judith Kitchen. <laughs> so again, getting back to reflection, I somehow naively, and I'm an experienced writer, thought that reflection meant <laughs> that I had to come on stage and say, I was very sad when my father died. <laughs> and again, confess. And of course, that's one method. But there are many methods to create an inner narrative. And here's just a few. So retrospection, looking back, very common. That's the guts of a memoir in a way, right? Making an assessment. Intrusion, you can step into a scene and make commentary on your crazy mother who carries her shih tzu into the mortuary to look at your father's dead body. Meditation or rumination, a thinking through or around or finding a perspective. So when I found myself in my parents' hometown in Pittsburgh, Kansas, roughly two months after my father died, having no idea why I was there, walking around the city aimlessly like a crazy person, uh, I could sit down and write about the fact that I was doing so and give you the sensation of that feeling, a meditation on what it means to be so lost. Introspection, a self-examination, honest appraisal or discovery. So that's when we actually say, wow, I was really not a nice person when I yelled at my mother for bringing the dog into the mortuary to look at my father's dead body. But I was in grief. And I can now forgive myself. Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing from my memoir, but you get the idea, right? And then imagination. So making up alternatives, inventing things, wishing it had been otherwise. I wish that my father hadn't chosen the mortuary that was on Chicago Avenue next to the taqueria, you know, something like that. What was really important for me to understand is that all of us as writers have particular habits and strengths. Um, 
David Shields talks about it as intelligence. And he says, you should find a form that honors your intelligence and then fight for it to the hilt. And here I might replace form with method. So what's the method of reflection that's going to be natural for you, the easiest for you? And fight for that to the hilt. To use myself again as an example, um, the imagination part <laughs> was e a bit easier for me as a poet. I could make leaps. I could describe things as a way of revealing the inner narrative without coming forth with a bald confession. Intrusion, oddly, was also easier. Um, I think because, again, as a poet, to create an extended scene was enormously difficult for me, especially around dialogue. I stink at dialogue. <laughs> so my strategy was to have a, like, a very quick, efficient dialogue passage and then intrude as the narrator and maybe give a little commentary. Okay. So when I went back to some of my writer friends and said, you didn't tell me <laughs> that reflection could be had in all these different ways. And to them, they're nonfiction writers. So they said, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, of course. So I thought it would be helpful just to tease this out. Here's some other things that I would add to Judith Kitchen's list. Speculation, playing the what if game. Um, and of course, it depends on the content of your story. But in my case, this was an extraordinarily valuable tool. I was trying to unearth a family history that was pretty scant. Um, I was talking about suicide. And of course, in the case of suicide, there are no known answers to be found. So the what if was you know, obvious, right? <coughs> Self-interrogation, asking hard questions about yourself. Again, this could be probably content um, dependent. But asking questions out loud to yourself on the page can be an, an incredible tool of a reflective um, impulse. Projection, I did a lot of this too, especially in early drafts, <laughs> ascribing a feeling or thought or impulse to someone else. And for me, because I was such a naturally descriptive writer, it was really showing up when I described landscape. And a lot of it was really useful, and a lot of it was really awful. But I allowed myself the freedom to do that. Digressions, also really, really important for me as a writer. So again, when I got too uncomfortable being the center of attention inside my own story, I would digress into a thought. And because my story was sort of revolving around the question and paradox of grief, Everyone does grief differently. The way I did grief um, was really like an investigative grief. I was reading like crazy and absorbing a lot of information. So I had a lot of factual material um, at my fingertips on various things. <laughs> Suicide, climate change, numerology, those are just a few. And I would see when the heat got too uh, much to bear, so this goes maybe to Sarah's comment. Sometimes you're trying to reflect on the page and it's emotionally very challenging. I would allow myself to digress. 
And when I did it, I thought, this is a disaster. <laughs> because there's all this disparate information in the book. It turned out to be the most salient point piece of the memoir. It actually became one of the most important threads of my inner narrative. Because it revealed my mind, and it revealed who I am as a thinker, and it oddly allowed points of off-gassing from the story, which was really pretty dark. Does that make sense? So for me, no one ever told me, none of my good creative nonfiction friends said, oh, you can digress here. They all wanted me to stay on point, right? And that's the other thing I would say is that readers, you will never be able to give them enough. They will always say they want more. Always. I think, and especially in a personal narrative. And you have to make those tough decisions about what you actually want to reveal and what you don't. And be okay with that. And be okay with you, them telling you more. Sarah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess like the, it seems obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me. Like the whole point of reflection is it doesn't have, you should follow your mind as it works naturally. And with however it works naturally in tandem with the subject matter which you're approaching, right? All right, so my talk is the transformative power <laughs> of reflection. So what about this idea of transformation? And I promised you that I'd talk about four things to kind of ruminate on to potentially open up transformation. And again, I'm going to shout out to Hope here, because I think she will really unpack um, that transformation in action. I'm just wetting the whistle here. Let's think, so far we've been talking about reflection in terms of rhetoric. Let's think outside of rhetoric. And again, this is a poet's mind, so just bear with me. Um, the first thing we should know is that reflection is a process of change, right? So getting back to physics, it's, it's a phenomenon in which energy is returned, boom, on a surface. Okay, so let's think about when we reflect, we are in effect breaking up an experience into pieces and then creating a new form. <laughs> Thank you for that interlude. We know when we see a reflection in nature, like this picture taken in Oregon, that the surface area, which offers the reflection, can sometimes be smooth, and then you have a perfect mirror of your image, can sometimes be rough. Right? So, metaphorically, let's think about the surface. That's your story. What does your story require? What kind of surface will you use? So take a look at that little piece of writing you wrote earlier. Right? 
if you had to think about a reflective device that might serve that little story, what would it be? Would it be something fragmented? Would it be something dramatic? Would it be something lyric? And do you know what I mean by those questions? <laughs> yes, no? Someone help. So what are your questions about it? What is lyric? Let me put it another way. In other words, you're thinking about the story, the storytelling, as the literal surface. And the reflective mode is something that will bounce back off of it, right? So if the story being told is fragmented in little parts that create a larger whole, you may think about a reflective process that mirrors that or works in juxtaposition. Maybe the reflective part is much more concrete in its narrative. Drama. I mean, some stories are more dramatic than others just by their nature. Some stories are more reflective than others just by their nature, right? The death of a father by suicide, dramatic? Yes, no way around it. I got two grandfathers who also died by suicide. Family with a long inheritance of suicide, that's very dramatic. So I have to do everything I can in the story surrounding the story to kind of soften that, to kind of give the reader a break, but also to tamp down some of the drama which is inherent in the story. Is this helping? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, here's a diagram of how a reflection actually works, okay? So the line on the right is, again, let's say your narrative, your storytelling. This actual bounce, this angle of incidence, angle of reflection. That's the layering you're going to do in the memoir to buoy that surface. The point of incidence, okay? Do you see where the point of incidence is? <laughs> the little red arrow that strikes the surface? That's the point of incidence. So what's the occasion of the telling? What's the entry point? I'm sure you've heard these questions before <laughs> if you've taken a creative nonfiction class. Why are you writing this? Why now? Why here? And these are all questions you have to answer. On the page, they may not actually, those answers may not enter into the memoir itself. But if you don't do this work, you won't be able to create the layers necessary for the reflective part of the memoir. And you're going to have to answer these questions frequently, not just once. Over the progression of the draft, you'll keep returning to these questions. Because as Hope's talks suggest, you will change over time. My memoir took eight years, but I'm a slow writer, and I had to learn to write in paragraphs, and I go over every sentence about 16 times. 
So don't take me as a rubric for how long it takes to write a book. <laughs> but these questions uh, I answered probably 50 to 60 times in the progress of those eight years. And my answers changed consistently. My answers changed consistently. <laughs> so the point of incidence changed. And every time it changed, I had new information. Did I have to rewrite my whole draft? No. But I did have to go in and stitch in another layer of reflection. And going back to Judith Kitchen and maybe some of the things I knew I was good at, I could start to discover the recipe of what this project was. I have a lot of digression, which is good. It's giving the book air, gives the reader some room. But boy, I hardly have any material here where I really am looking back and offering what the mature writer, the person now who's on the other side of grief, could say about any of this. So again, in my own process, it was easier for me in those early drafts to do what I can do easily, digress, make an image, um, project. I'm really good at that. <laughs> I'm an only child. But later on in the final draft, and we're talking very final draft, so the order is all established. It's already been proofread and copyread, and people are picking away at it. Now I'm going through it one more time and discovering, oh, here's a spot where I could write two sentences to sort of give you some framework. Another really salient point for me as a writer, because I was kind of on the spare end just uh, in, by nature, <laughs> two lines of reflection will go a long way. This doesn't have to be pages and pages. Okay. There's the mirror. The other thing we, of course, can't forget is the viewer or the perce perceiver. Okay, so that's you. You as the character and the narrator. You have to have a relationship with yourself that's a little bit distanced, but you also have to create a relationship with the reader. And the reader needs to know both of these characters. Me, myself, and I, right? So here are four methods you might apply to try to help you achieve this. Number one is to try to frame the experience differently. So cropping a scene or leaving something out that you thought was essential. Sometimes leaving silence in a story can be really effective. Try a different lens. So this refers to description. If you've written all close-up scenes, um, pull back. Give us the larger landscape. If I'm having an argument with my mother in front of my father's grave, I can pull back and take you out into the city, which is Pittsburgh, Kansas. And I can get you out even farther, which is southeastern Kansas, which has been ravaged by mining and extraction. And I can use those descriptors to kind of help set the emotional tone of what's happening at the gravesite. Change the way you use time. This is a big one. 
course, you can't squeeze a lifetime into 60 seconds. But this refers to those moments that you're trying to summarize or reflect. You can use time differently. And reflection, remember, doesn't always mean looking back, even though the original meaning is bending back. Sometimes it's helpful to drive the engine in a different direction. Can you look forward? Can you imagine yourself five years from now being farther away from this traumatic event? Can you imagine your mother five years from now being in a different place from this traumatic event? Apply a different light, especially if you're a character in your own story. It's hard to see yourself, all sides of yourself, in a mirror, and let's just be thankful for that. <laughs> um, but try shining the same light you have on yourself as your characters. So this was a problem that came up for me. I was, um, well, interestingly, I have you know, two parents, like most people. Uh, the dead parent, the father, was much easier to describe than the living parent because you feel threatened by... Uh, harming one's feelings, I guess. Um, but then in this early drafts, those characters were very alive compared to me, right? You didn't know anything about me or even how I behaved. So you have to really begin to think of yourself as a character, which is really awkward for a lot of us. Okay? So what if you just indulge with me in an experiment, take um, three minutes, this little nugget that you wrote, choose one of these methods and now try revisiting it by using one of these little techniques to kind of change how the viewer-perceiver works. You following me? Yeah, good, okay. Thank you all. Thank you.